You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke and experience true discipleship. Today's scripture is from Matthew 13, 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Peace be with you. Will you pray with me before we jump into God's word? Father, we come to you. And I come particularly claiming a promise that you've made. In Isaiah 44, you promised that you would pour out water on thirsty land. And you would bring streams in the desert and dry grounds. And Lord, when I look at the world and I look at all that's going on around us, the violence that's taken place this weekend, the anger, the divisions, the strife, on top of that, the the dryness in our own lives and the barrenness in our own lives that instantly gets filled with depression, with anxiety, with besetting sins that continue to drag us down and keep us from a life of joy. Father, I come to you and we come to you crying out that you would bring water onto the thirsty land. That your spirit, as we come to your word, that he would bring reviving, as we sang, that he would bring refreshing and renewal to our souls, that you, Father, might awaken us once again to the wonder of what you're doing in the world, to the promises that you've given to us, so that we might be anchored, we might be grounded, and we might be a people filled with hope in a world that is hopeless, in a world that lies to us all the time, that promises way more than it can ever deliver, a world that is devoid of hope, of joy, love. Father, ground us in your word. Renew us and awaken us. We trust your spirit who's at work in our midst to do this. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. For the last few weeks, we've been in Matthew chapter 13, and Matthew 13, Matthew, what he does is he compiles a collection of parables that Jesus taught. And these stories, these short stories, it, they're not a collection of disconnected stories so much as they're all pointing towards one thing. There's one thread that runs through them all and that ties them all together, and that's the kingdom of God. And this thread, it doesn't just tie these parables together. This thread of the kingdom of God, it's really the thread that runs throughout Jesus's ministry here on earth and his preaching and his teaching. But the kingdom is something that's hard for a lot of us to wrap our minds around. It's hard for us to define. And if you're like me, I came to faith as a teenager, but I feel like it was years before I heard anyone teach on the kingdom of God. I heard about the cross, heard about justification and forgiveness, but kingdom it's something that a lot of us, we're just not super familiar with. And part of that's because it's hard to define and it's hard to wrap our mind around. Maybe the, the most succinct definition of the kingdom I could give is the kingdom is the redemptive reign of God. 
It's the redemptive reign of God. And what I mean by that is that our world, God created a good because of sin. Everything has been infected by sin and it's broken and it's falling apart. But God did not leave this world as it is. God, through Jesus Christ, has broken into this world. He's broken into all of the brokenness, all of the sin, in order to bring healing, to bring forgiveness, to restore what's broken, and to renew all things. So when Jesus comes on the scene and he announces the kingdom of God is at hand, this is the greatest announcement in the history of the world. It's the greatest announcement you could ever hear. All of the bad stuff's going away. All of the sad things are coming untrue. And God's making all things new. So the question that a lot of people then and now have wrestled with was, how does this kingdom actually come? What does this mean? How does this work? If you're actually going to turn this, <laughs> the trajectory of history, how's it going to happen? And Jesus, he's trying to prepare us that the kingdom's not going to come with dramatic displays of power or spectacular shows of splendor because he tells us the kingdom of God is like, it's like a seed. It's like a little bit of leaven. Or in the two parables we read this morning, it's like a treasure hidden in a field or a pearl hidden among other pearls. The kingdom is different than you think. Last week, Pastor Jonathan <clears throat> said that the kingdom is hidden and unstoppable. And what Jesus tells us in these two parables is, once again, the kingdom is hidden. He tells us it's costly, but it's invaluable. And so I want to look at this text under those three head headings, the hiddenness of the kingdom, the costliness of the kingdom, and then the surpassing greatness of the kingdom, but starting with the hiddenness. Now, when I say hidden, I don't mean that you need a a treasure map and clues to find it. When Jesus talks about the kingdom, he speaks of it as being hidden in plain sight, hidden in the very ordinary things of life. So the first parable about a man finding a treasure in a field. This man maybe is a tenant farmer who is working the field of a wealthy man. He's in this field and he stumbles across this treasure that's been buried there. Now that would be very strange in our day, and it was a little strange back in that day, but you have to understand, in those days, they didn't have banks, they didn't have safety deposit boxes, and so one of the ways that you would protect your valuables, you'd put them in a sealed container, and then you would bury them in the ground, where you knew where they were, and no one else knew where they were. But this man, as he's walking through, working the field, maybe he comes upon this treasure. Now, who knows how many other people had walked through that field, and had been sitting there, but he found it. It was hidden, but it was in plain sight. The second one, a merchant of pearls. The picture here is a guy who's going through, you know, he's, he's at a shop and he's going through baskets and baskets of pearls. Like we might rummage through cardboard boxes at a garage sale or Goodwill. And he's looking and there's all of these pearls, but then he finds this one pearl that's worth more than all of the other pearls and everything else in that shop combined. Now, there are plenty of other people who'd probably handled that pearl before and gone through and seen it, but this man found it. It was hidden, but it was hidden in plain sight. Jesus is telling us that the kingdom, it's not going to come with fireworks. You have to have eyes to see. You have to have ears to hear in order to recognize it. 
Most people will overlook it or disregard it, but you need to seek it out. And we see this hiddenness of the kingdom in a lot of things throughout the New Testament. The kingdom, we see the hiddenness of it in the humanity and humility of Jesus Christ. All things were created by him, through him, and for him. So you think of everything on this earth, all of the majesty here on earth. And then you think of our solar system. And then you think of the galaxies. He created all of these things. And when he chose to enter into our world, how did he show up? As a baby. Born in poverty to a single mom. Wasn't what anyone was expecting. Isaiah prophesying about Jesus coming, he says that he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He's hidden in plain sight. There's a hiddenness not just in the humanity and humility of Jesus. There's a hiddenness in the simplicity of Jesus's message. He comes on the scene and he says, big news. God is taking the world back and he's going to heal it of all that is wrong with it. All right, what do we do? Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Stop doing what you're doing and join me in what I'm doing. He doesn't give a spiritual pilgrimage to make or a sacred mountain to climb. He doesn't give, you know, nine steps, nine levels we have to work through to find spiritual awareness. So stop doing what you're doing and then join me in what I'm doing and then you're part of it. It seems way too easy, way too simple. And this message, though, it's been preached for 2,000 years, and for 2,000 years it's been bearing fruit. You know, I think of this, the, the hiddenness. We've got it in Jesus. We've got it in the message. And then we've even got it in his people. And I think of this. I did youth ministry for a number of years. And I remember it was my freshman year of college. I was leading two Bible studies with high school guys. Uh, and we met in my parents' basement, <laughs> and they would come. We would usually be playing basketball or something, and then we would come sweaty and smelly, stumbling into Bible study. We would open the Word. Guys would be making jokes, not paying attention, falling asleep. And I remember sitting there thinking, is this doing any good? Like, are we accomplishing anything at all? But we did it. We did it regularly. We opened the Word. We talked about Jesus. And now here we are 20 years 20-something years later, and many of those guys are now pastors, they're faithful Christians, they're good fathers, good husbands, they're bearing tons of fruit. But in the moment, it felt so ordinary. The kingdom's hidden in the ordinary, the ordinariness of what we do here. You notice we do the same thing every week. We sing, we pray, someone preaches, we break bread, dip it in wine. Then we raise our hands at the end. That's the only thing that's not ordinary for some of you, is the benediction. Everything, it's just, it's ordinary. But this is how God moves. C.S. Lewis, he wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters, which is, it's an imaginative work of fiction in which Lewis imagines a senior demon, Screwtape, writing letters to his nephew, Wormwood, and telling him how to distract and pull both Christians and people who are curious about Christianity away from the Christian faith. And one of the tactics that Screwtape advocates is he says, overwhelm them with the ordinariness 
of the church. Make them feel just how ordinary it is when you go to church. Uh, Screwtape writes, Make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew or chair. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people the next pew really contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy. That's God's side. No matter. Your patient, thanks to our father below, is a fool. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. I read that and I felt like that's been used on me a lot. And I've probably been the cause of that, especially if you're next to me when I'm singing during the service. Like that's how the pastor sings. God couldn't have given him a better pitch. And a lot of times we go to church and sometimes services are really powerful and a lot of times they're kind of like, oh, how was church? It was okay. It feels so ordinary that we lose sight of the fact that from a heavenly perspective, the church is the bride of Christ and it's the pillar and the foundation of the truth. And for 2,000 years, the church has been advancing. The gates of hell have not prevailed against it and billions of people now worship Jesus because of it. But we often don't see that because it feels so ordinary. The kingdom of God, it's all around us. It's breaking through ordinary places, ordinary people, and it's seemingly ordinary ways. But you got to have eyes to see it. And some of you here, you're waiting on a sign from God. You're waiting on a miracle or some dramatic demonstration of his power. And I would say if you are waiting on a supernatural act of God to shake your life up, you might spend your life waiting. Pastor Mike preached a few months ago on Matthew 12 where the crowds come to Jesus and they say, give us a sign. Do something. Show us your power. And Jesus basically responds and says, no. Like, I'm not here to perform for you. The reason Jesus says no is because oftentimes when we demand signs of God, that's a way of us trying to stay in control. It's a way of us trying to manipulate him or make him kind of conform to us and how we think about the world. Conform to us and our desires. Conform to us and our own little queendoms and kingdoms. But Jesus, he doesn't care about our kingdoms and our queendoms. He cares about his kingdom. And if you're going to come, you're going to come to him on his terms. And he's chosen to bring the kingdom in ordinary ways. It's hidden. Hidden in plain sight. Not only is it hidden, these parables also teach us that the kingdom is costly. You know, in most stories about treasure, whether fictional or actual, the emphasis is usually placed on one of two things. Sometimes it's the, the emphasis is put on the thrill of the hunt. So think like National Treasure or Indiana Jones or the Goonies. The whole story is about what people are doing, all that they have to go through, the clues, in order to find the treasure. And then sometimes the emphasis is put upon what you do with the treasure when you find it, like the Count of Monte Cristo or anyone who wins the lottery. What are you going to do with it? But Jesus, he doesn't put the emphasis on either the treasure hunting or the treasure spending. He puts the emphasis someplace pretty interesting. He puts it on the treasure buying. In both parables, 
Jesus emphasizes the cost that was paid to secure the treasure. About the farmer, he says, the farmer goes and sells all that he has. The merchant who found the pearl went and sold all that he had. Twice, he's making it clear that to grab hold of the kingdom, to grab hold of this great treasure, we're going to have to let go of a lot of things. We have to empty our hands. He doesn't want us to be naive. There is a great cost to the kingdom. Now, this parable has frustrated a lot of theologians and commentators throughout the years because they read it and they're saying, well, does this mean that we, we can buy our way into the kingdom? Is that what Jesus is saying? Well, of course not. We can't buy our way into the kingdom. The kingdom is offered to us freely. It comes by grace. But... To grab hold of it, there's a lot we have to let go of. And what we let go of, that's the cost of entering in. Imagine you want an all-expense-paid trip to the destination of your dreams. I don't know what it would be for you. For me, it would probably be Paris, and I would just go and eat for a month. My wife, it would be Greece. Maybe for some of you, it would be the Swiss Alps or Mumbai. Just wherever it is, your dream vacation, all expenses paid. You find out that you want and you found out that you got to take off that day. And so you go home and you throw a whole bunch of stuff in a bag and you rush to the airport and then you get to security, TSA. And you go through and you put your bag on the conveyor belt and, you know, it just starts lighting up and they, they pull you aside. You know, they take you to the little cubicle like you're going to the principal's office. And they open up the bag Anyone ever had this happen to me? Every time I fly, this happens to me. Every single time. Open up the bag, and what they do is they put, pull everything out, and they put everything on the table. Everything. You're sitting there and looking at your watch, and you know if you're going to catch this flight to your dream destination, you know that everything that's on that table is negotiable. You're kicking yourself for throwing your grandfather's pocket knife into the bag, but you realize, if I'm going to get the flight and get on the trip, that's got to be up for discussion. Everything's on the table. And so it is with the kingdom of God. To enter the kingdom, everything in our life gets put on the table. And Jesus has some strict restrictions about what you're allowed to bring and what you're not allowed to bring. But when we think about the cost, that's, that's the cost. The cost varies from person to person. Some people, Jesus takes a lot more off the table and others, not as much. I mean, in Matthew 19, the rich young ruler, what do I need to do? Jesus says, well, sell all you have. He's like the two men in these parables. But Jesus is telling these parables to his disciples and they didn't have to leave everything. They didn't have to sell everything. But Peter and Andrew, they had to leave their nets. And John and James, they had to leave their boat and their father. And Matthew had to leave his lucrative career as a tax collector. Everyone had to leave something. Because everyone has to put it on the table and let Jesus decide. Jesus doesn't want us to be naive to the cost. He doesn't want us to be naive that everything goes up. Everything's up for discussion. So how we think about and relate to money and material possessions. That goes on the table. If you're going to enter his kingdom, you can't act like everything you have is yours and no one's allowed to touch it. Instead, entering into his kingdom means you recognize 
that everything we have is a gift and everything is on loan from him. It's not just money and stuff. It's how we relate to one another. If you're a person who really struggles to forgive, if you're a person who's really good at holding grudges, that gets taken. He looks at that and he says, you you can't bring that into my kingdom. As a Christian, you cannot not forgive someone. I mean, Jesus spells this out so clearly in Matthew 6. He says, if you forgive others their sins, the Father will forgive you. If you don't forgive, the Father won't forgive you. And he's not saying we buy our salvation through our forgiveness. What he's saying is in my kingdom, you have to forgive. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be reconciled and best friends, but you have to forgive, and you can't hold grudges. And when the gossip train visits your life, it stops there. This changes how we think about ourselves. Self-righteousness, the sense that I'm, I'm really good. I mean, we all sin. Most people just sin worse than me. The sense of superiority over other people. It's on the table. Any and everything in our life that runs counter to his kingdom, he's going to take. Now, this is hard. This is the cost of discipleship. And in many ways, I think the farmer and the pearl merchant in these two parables had it a lot easier than we do. Because for them, it was a one-and-done affair. They found this treasure, they sold all they had, and then they got it. For us, it's a day-by-day, moment-by-moment action of selling and buying. It's not one-and-done. It's something we do throughout our lives. And it's hard. Jesus told us that if we're going to follow him, we have to take up our cross daily. Paul said, I die every day. Every day I'm dying to things so that I might grab hold of Christ and his kingdom. When I look and consider the landscape of American Christianity, not just the numerical decline, but the spiritual decline, I I think about this principle I heard for organizational leadership. Someone was talking to me, the lead pastor of the church. He said, what's wrong with the church is probably wrong with you and it's probably built in. And they had this, this principle. They said, your system is perfectly designed to achieve the results you're getting. Your system is perfectly designed to achieve the results you're getting. Your life is perfectly designed to achieve the results you're getting. And so if there is brokenness, if there is, are areas that aren't being dealt with, of course, garbage in, garbage out, this is what's going to happen. And when I look at the church, and when I even look at my own life, I see us wanting to do something that Jesus says is impossible. I see, I feel it all the time. I want to buy the field, but I don't want to sell all that I have. Like, I want to bargain. I want to negotiate. It might be the greatest treasure ever, but, you know, I want to bargain it down. So, Jesus, you're going to have my time, but you can't have my money. Or you're going to have my money, but you can't have my career. Jesus, you can have all of these things, but don't touch this relationship. Or maybe, but don't force me to stay in this relationship. We want to buy, but we don't want to sell. Buying's easy. It's the selling that's hard. And Jesus doesn't want us to be naive. Now, it's a hard word. It's hard for me 
preparing the sermon this week thinking and examining my life, like all of the things that I've just got accustomed to and I've carried with me this far, what, what needs to go? And I imagine trusting spirits at work in your life as he is in mine, when you hear the question, what do you need to sell in order to buy the field, a lot of us already know the answer or we have some idea. We already know that he's just already probably been working on it. But where it gets challenging is it's so hard sometimes. And that's where we have to see that there is a costliness, but there's also a surpassing greatness to the kingdom. Because if we stop here, what ends up happening is either out of fear, like I don't want to go to hell, out of guilt, if I'm a good Christian, this is what I have to do, out of compulsion or drudgery, this is my obligation But when we look at these parables, you'll notice neither man is acting out of fear, guilt, or obligation. Neither of them are doing this out of a sense of drudgery. Normally, if you told someone you have to sell all you have to grab hold of this, there would be a little bit of mourning. But instead, Jesus tells us, and these are probably the three most important words in these two parables. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. I mean, these guys, they don't even think they're making a sacrifice. They see the treasure And they're rushing to liquidate everything that they have to go and buy it. It's not a sacrifice. It's a joy. It's a no-brainer of a decision for them. When I was in college, my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, we got to see Nickel Creek perform. Anyone remember Nickel Creek? If you were in college in the late 90s, early 2000s, you probably remember them. They're a bluegrass, newgrass band and I used to play more music back then and we got like front row seats and the guitar player's name was Sean Watkins. His guitar, it sounded unlike any guitar I've ever heard in my life. Like God had just anointed that guitar and the warmth of heaven was rolling over us as he was playing it. And I was kind of, I mean, they were, it was a great performance, but I was just fixated on the guitar and afterwards I got to meet him. And I said, hey, band was great, you sound great, but tell me about this guitar. You know, because of course it's not his talent and his years of practicing, it's got to just be the instrument. And of course, buying an instrument like that would make me a million times better. But I asked him, and he says, well, it's kind of a custom made uh, by a guy named Dana Bourgeois, and he's only made 25 of them. And he let me hold the thing, and you know, my hands are shaking, like wiping it off. And so we leave, and I'm like, I've got to get one of those. Like, I got to get that guitar. I go home, I hop on eBay, and sure enough, not only is there one for sale, it's number, serial number one of 25 made, and it's up for sale on eBay. The only problem was it cost more than anything I had purchased in my life up to that point, including a car. And so I'm looking at this like, I, I have to get this guitar. It's pretty expensive. I call my dad, and he says, well... I had a few instruments at that point, some nice instruments, Martin guitar and some other things. And he said, well, you, can, you could probably sell all these instruments and sell a couple of these things, and then you can buy it. And I said, done. 
I sold them all, got onto eBay, bought the thing, took the day off of school and work when it was getting shipped to my house just because I wanted to be there like a little kid on Christmas waiting. And it came, and it was as glorious as I expected, but I wasn't as good as he was. So the sound never quite got, got where, where it was on the stage. But I think back on that time, and it, this week I was trying to remember, what was it that I sold? What was the exact guitar? It was a Martin D20. I don't remember what year. It was a good, really good guitar and a couple other things. But I never once regretted the decision because the joy of what I was getting so far overshadowed the cost. It was a no-brainer. And Jesus is telling us, yes, the, co- the kingdom is costly, It might cost you everything, but it's a no-brainer of a decision because it's not overpriced. It's not expensive. I heard one one pastor put it like this. He asked, is something that costs $500 expensive? Uh, That's a hard question to answer, right? I mean, if it's a hand towel, like, (laughs) yes, that would be an expensive hand towel. You know, it was 500-count Egyptian cotton. But what if it was the keys to your dream car? I don't know what your dream car is. Range Rover, Tesla, just looking around at the lot. Suburban, Honda Odyssey, whatever. (laughs) $500, here are the keys, brand new, drive it off the lot. That'd be a steal of a deal, right? Only a fool wouldn't take that deal. And that would probably be the easiest $500 you ever spend in your life. What if you don't have $500? You would find $500. You would find a way to make it happen. See, the joy of what you're gaining so far outweighs the cost of what you have to pay. It's not even worth comparing. And as Jesus is telling us about his kingdom, he's saying, don't miss it because it's hidden in the ordinary. And don't don't miss the cost because it's going to change everything. But don't miss the greatness, the value, because it's worth more than everything else combined. Now, a lot of times when we talk about the kingdom, we can talk about it in in an abstract way. Like you get the kingdom and it's worth more than anything. What are we actually saying? What do we get when we get the kingdom? What do we get when we enter into life with God? I'll give you seven things. This isn't an exhaustive list, but it's a good start. When you're willing to sell what you have to buy the field, the first thing you get is peace with God. You get forgiveness. You get forgiveness over the things that you've done in your past that still haunt you. You get forgiveness for the things you're doing in the present that you really wish you weren't doing. You get forgiveness for the things you're going to do in the future that you don't even know you're going to do yet. You get forgiveness. You get peace with God. He doesn't sit in heaven every day. I love them. I love them not. I love them. I love them not, depending on how they're performing. Which leads to the second one. You get forgiveness and peace with God. Number two, you're loved by God. Just as you are. He doesn't love you when you live up to a standard. He loves you because of the work of his sons. He doesn't love you as you think you ought to be. He loves you as you are. Now he's going to press in and 
do some work on your life and call you to change. But right now, I wonder how many of us live there. Number three, he gives you the ability to change. I mean, as a people, we are desperate for change. We are hungry for change. Billions of dollars are spent every year on therapists and on life coaches and on health coaches and nutritionists because it shows how desperately we want to change and how hard it is to change. Now, those things can help us, but God has given us his spirit. He's poured his spirit into our lives and he's broken the chains that enslave us so that we can't actually change. Who you are today doesn't have to be who you'll always be. Number four, you get a new purpose in life. No one wants to live a life of insignificance. No one wants to spend their life on this earth that's going round and round the sun feeling like they're a hamster going on a wheel. Like in the kingdom, you get to take part in the greatest work in the history of the world. You live a life of consequence. Number five, you get the assurance that everything is working for your good. Paul says, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, God, in his wisdom and in his sovereignty, he's actually working everything together, orchestrating everything, that the absolute worst things that you go through on this earth, he is going to flip them and turn them for your good. Now, they might draw you closer to him. They might refine you. They might humble you. They might stretch you or grow you. But nothing, no pain, no suffering, no hardship or loss on this earth is a true loss in the kingdom of God because God uses all of them. Number six, you get the sure and certain hope of a new creation. A new creation which isn't even worth comparing with the best things of this creation. These are just shadows. The best meal, the best joys, the best views, they're shadows of the new heavens and the new earth that are to come, that are awaiting us. And then number seven, you get God. You get God. You get to dwell with the one who fulfills your deepest longings and desires because he he hardwired them into you. You get to dwell with him for eternity. Do you see the value? Do you see the surpassing greatness? Do you see the joy? I think that our, our greatest spiritual problem is it's not a lack of discipline. Our greatest spiritual Pathology. It's not that we're, we're not serious enough about our faith. I think our greatest pathology and our greatest problem is we don't see the greatness and the, the riches of what Christ has come to give us. Finish the sentence for me. The kingdom of God is like. If you're going to tell the parable, the kingdom of God is like. I think for some of you, the kingdom of God is like a to-do list that a man found, and instantly when he found it, he felt behind. The kingdom of heaven is like a plate of raw vegetables. It's not going to be fun to eat, and it's going to take a long time, but in the end, it's for your good. The kingdom of heaven is like a 
personal experience, 12-hour road trip with five kids to Disney World, and they all get car sick. Like, what is the kingdom of heaven like to you? What do you think? Because how you think about the kingdom is directly tied to how you think about God. And many of us have an image of God in our minds that he's anti-joy, anti-pleasure, anti-delight, anti-creation, anti-human, anti-everything. We just think that he's against us and he's against our joy. But in these two parables, we see he's actually for our joy and he wants us to have treasure. He's for your joy and he wants you to have treasure. If you don't see that, then when you you come to parables like this or you hear about the cost of discipleship, what you're going to hear is Jesus saying, you better buckle down, you better hate your life and hate everything in this world and just be a pretty miserable person. And then if you do that well enough, God might choose to leave the light of heaven on for you. Now that might be something, but that's not Christianity. Christianity, the Bible, Jesus tells us that God is for us. He's for our good, and he's for our joy. He's so for us that he gave his only son. As Paul says, if he did not spare his own son, how much more will he give us? He didn't spare his own son so that he might forgive us, yes, but even more so that we might enter into his kingdom. Jesus says in Luke 12, he says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's his pleasure. He's making all things new, and he says, And I want you in. Come on. He doesn't say, How high will you jump? What will you do? How well will you perform? He says, Come be a part. It is my pleasure to give this to you. Does that square with your image of God? Because when you see the delight he has, the pleasure he has in giving us the kingdom, then, and only then, do we really understand what it means to sell. It's interesting. The very next verse, after saying, it's your father's good pleasure to give to the kingdom, Jesus says, therefore, sell your possessions, give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches or moth destroys. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. He's saying your father wants to give you the the great treasure, the kingdom. And because of that, to grab hold of that, start letting go of this stuff. Let it go, because it's his delight. And it's really about treasure. Like if, if you treasure this, You can't treasure that. Have you ever noticed that when when you hear sermons like this, when you read passages like this, for me, and I I would imagine for a lot of you, that, that we have a lot of things that we're like, yeah, you can have this, you can have this, and you can have this. But there's always like one part that we're like, but I don't know if I want to give you that one. And what, I've pastored long enough and I've been a Christian long enough that whatever that thing is, it's like, I'll give you all of these. He comes along and he says, no, 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 but that's the one that I want. And the reason why is because whatever that thing you're saying, you can have everything else, but you can't have this. Man, that's your treasure. Your treasure is 
intertwined and deeply connected with your heart. And Jesus, that's what he wants. So I want to ask you, what do you need to sell to buy the field? I've given you seven promises. I want to give you an eighth one. Jesus, he promises not only full recompense for everything we sell, he promises great reward. In Matthew 19, Jesus says to us, everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. What do you need to sell? What do you need to take your hands off of? might feel costly, but there's not even a risk in it. I mean, think of how staggering that promise is. Whatever you give up, I'm going to give you a hundred times return on it, and you get eternal life. See, the kingdom of God is costly. But what are you really giving up? What else are you going to do? Where else are you going to turn? As we think about that, we move towards the Lord's table, and we're reminded once again that God is so for us, he offered his son for our sins. On the night before Jesus' crucifixion, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that's been broken for you. And then he took the cup. He said, this is the cup of my blood, the cup of the new covenant that's poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when we come to the table, we're reminded once again that God is for us. He's for our good, and that frees us to open ourselves up. Paul says when you come to the table, you should examine yourself. It frees us to open ourselves up and say, God, God, what needs to go? What do I need to sell to buy the field? And we can do that with confidence, knowing that God's grace carries us and enables us to repent and move forward. And so if you're here and you're a Christian, I encourage you to eat and to drink, celebrating what Christ has done. If you're here and you are not a follower of Jesus, we ask that you not take part in this meal, but you take part in Jesus Christ, who gave his life to bring you home. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com east.